Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York's Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, in her first remarks since Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that he's resigning, said she intends to be a fighter for New York. After the state attorney general found Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women and that key staff members were complicit in some retaliatory actions against an accuser, she acknowledged that there will be, quote, turnover in what is now a tainted administration. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Hochul says she believes that it was appropriate for Cuomo to step down. She says she spoke to the governor for the first time in over six months, and he pledged his full support for a smooth transition. Hochul says she's ready to take over as the state's first female governor on August 24th. It's not something we expected or asked for, but I am fully prepared to assume the responsibilities as the 57th governor of the state of New York. Hochul says her style as the chief executive will be to listen first and then take decisive action, a contrast to the top-down, hard-charging style that Cuomo employs. But she says that doesn't mean she'll be complacent. And the promise I make to all New Yorkers, right here and right now, I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Hochul says she intends to continue with many of the administration's key policies and programs, including the $15 minimum wage and paid family leave and economic development projects. But she says one tradition that will not continue is the workplace atmosphere of bullying and intimidation that was outlined in the AG's report. And I'm going to stand right here. At the end of my term, whenever it ends, no one will ever describe my administration is a toxic work environment. Hochul was hesitant to outline a new agenda, saying she is not yet governor for 13 days. She also would not reveal who she might pick as her lieutenant governor, saying she's considering a number of individuals. But she hinted that they might come from the downstate area to balance Hochul's Buffalo origins. She says there will be turnover in the administration and that several top aides to Cuomo named in the attorney general's report as having acted unethically will not keep their jobs. Hochul will inherit a number of big challenges, including rising COVID-19 rates due to the Delta variant and the state's stagnating vaccination rate. She would not rule out reissuing a state of emergency to deal with the pandemic or issue mask mandates, saying all options are on the table. But she says she intends to work first to convince more New Yorkers to get the vaccine. I think the answer is very simple. More people being vaccinated is our key out of this. And I'm going to be working with the communities where the rates are higher, the infection and the vaccination rates are lower, and to come up with a very strategic approach to target that and make sure we overcome the hesitation and worries, but also to make it more widely available. Even when Hochul becomes governor, Cuomo is not likely to fade from the news cycle anytime soon. He still faces a criminal complaint from accuser Brittany Camisso, and the Albany County Sheriff is continuing to investigate that claim. There's an ongoing federal investigation into whether he and top aides concealed the true number of nursing home deaths during the COVID pandemic. And the state assembly has not curtailed an impeachment impeachment inquiry, even though the governor is leaving. Hochul, asked about whether impeachment should go forward, says she won't dictate to the legislature how they should conduct their business. 
In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The New York State Education Department has released a health and safety guide for school districts as they prepare to reopen classrooms next month. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with more. NYSED unveiled an online resource that includes recommendations and guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on mask wearing, vaccination, and social distancing, but does not mandate actions. NYSED says the guide is based on the best health and safety information currently available and will be updated as public health conditions change. Stevie Vargas is the statewide campaign coordinator with the Alliance for Quality Education. I spent last night coming through the New York State Education Department's new guidelines. Saw some amazing things in there that really prioritizes the health of our students. So we're happy to see that they were proactive um, in releasing these guidelines. Our students have been through a tremendous amount of grief. We all experienced a pandemic and the trials of a pandemic together. Our students and parents are eager to get back to school and making sure that we are prioritizing the health and safety of our kids is a good call, especially if it allows them to return back to an in-person, in-school option. The guide addresses questions related to COVID-19 vaccinations, monitoring community transmission, masks, physical distancing, sports and extracurricular activities, COVID screening, health questionnaire screenings, contact tracing, COVID-related facilities projects, remote instruction, and funding sources available to schools and districts. Superintendent Stephen Tomlinson says the Broad Alban Perth Central School District appreciates the State Education Department taking action. Producing a document that, quite honestly, was a burden that placed on them through the um, through the ch- uh, chain of command coming from uh, upper-level New York State government. The plan is comprehensive. It stops short of requiring any one particular decision, uh, whether it be mask wearing, whether it be physical distancing, testing in schools. It is comprehensive. It is a starting point for uh, for Broad Alban Perth, and I suspect uh, public schools across the state, as we all work hard to prepare our stu- schools to open up safely uh, in September. Albany Schools Superintendent Kawita Adams issued a statement Friday, quote, We are reviewing vaccination guidance with our legal team as our back-to-school plans develop and monitoring COVID-19 transmission rates in Albany County on a daily basis. A district spokesman says back-to-school plans Adams previously released are aligned with the new guidance. Again, AQE's Vargas. We have had a year, almost a year and a half, to plan for this and make sure that we have a seamless transition. Now is the time for all of us, parents, students, teachers, and stakeholders, to get on the same page and create a system and environment that works for our students. NYSED said it did not have anyone available to comment. The agency provided a statement which quotes Commissioner Betty Rosa. At a time when schools are preparing to reopen and the COVID positivity rate is increasing, we must ensure our schools and districts have the most up-to-date resources and mitigation strategies available to keep our children and school staff safe. Reopening amidst a pandemic for the second consecutive year is truly a daunting task. Our hope is that this guide, coupled with the input of local health officials, will help the state's education community as they prepare for September.
Earlier this month, the state health department said it would not issue guidance for reopening schools, citing the end of the state's emergency declaration. DOH left decisions up to school districts. The New York State Education Department called the decision a dereliction of duty. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. Alan, well, Speaker Carl Hasty of the Assembly ended the impeachment inquiry into Governor Andrew Cuomo. But should they? I mean, there's been a lot of criticism about this, Alan. The idea that if they continued with the impeachment and impeached the governor and it would rule out him having an ability to run for office again. It looks like that won't happen, even though a report will be released. Should they impeach the governor? I am decidedly against that. I think it's a big mistake. Look, Cuomo did what he had to do. He got out. And frankly, he's in disgrace. So the idea that a few of the people in the legislature who really had it out for Cuomo, some say with good reason, ended up tasting blood and not wanting to give it up. But the guy's out of there. What do we need that for? Now we have a new governor. We'll see how she does. I, for example, did not think that her first speech was all that inspiring. It was competent. It was inspiring. We have to see who comes in against her, whether or not she'll have a primary opponent. I'm sure she will. And whether Tish James will emerge as somebody who runs against her. I think if James runs against Oakland, she's going to win. After all, she's from New York City. She's of color. She has shown herself to be highly effective in so many ways. So we'll have to keep our eye on that situation. In the meantime, you see Hochul, the incoming governor, looking for the right person from New York City who will help her balance her Niagara roots against the big city where Democratic politicians almost always have to, by rule, come from. So we'll see how that works out. The other side of this coin is the Republicans, and they've been pushing Lee Zeldin, the Trumper, former congressman who seemingly does not fit the mold for New York when it comes to a Republican possibly beating a Democrat in a race for governor. But certainly the calculus has changed a bit with the governor now resigning. Well, sure. They think they can win. The Republicans think they can win, but they're putting the wrong guy up. I mean, if it's Zeldin, a Republican, as you say, Trumper, how do you win in blue state New York? Do you think anybody can win because of what happened to Cuomo? If Cuomo was still there, they might have a better shot. Now, Astorino is a popular guy. He has had his losses in life politically. And certainly he would be more able to run a campaign, especially if Cuomo were still here, but he's not. So the Republicans in blue state New York are going to have it rough. Does that mean they can't win? It does not. Uh, We have seen uh, George Pataki and others defy the odds and win. So now we see. I'm wondering why the Republicans have made this disastrous choice of Zeldin, or the leaders have anyway. There will be a primary, and I believe Astorino has a shot. But they're still all afraid of Donald Trump. That's what it comes down to. And so they choose a Trumper, uh, thinking that even if they lose, they have protected themselves, each individual politically, from retribution by Trump. 
Alan, a very interesting story in the New York Times, which has the headline, Feud? What feud? Hochul's New York City visit suggests a peace offering. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, of course, about to become the new governor of New York. She traveled to New York City. She's been meeting with leaders there, and she's basically put her hand out and said, let's cooperate on issues across the state. And you and I have talked over the years about the feud that existed between the governor, Andrew Cuomo, and the New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, and the fights they would have for seemingly no other reason than the sort of, I'm going to get you for that. Well, there are reasons for that happening. Obviously, at one point, both men thought that they could be president of the United States, which didn't happen. And Cuomo went after de Blasio with everything he had. De Blasio fought back as best he could. But remember that the governor in New York State, the governor is much more important than the mayors are. And de Blasio didn't look good. His numbers were terrible. He was term limited. I don't know where he goes from here, but he has not been a successful politician. But he couldn't help himself, as I read the papers. He took a real shot at Cuomo, and, you know, maybe it was a victory lap because Cuomo has resigned, de Blasio isn't. But, you know, when you get into these kinds of fights with two major politicians, you can come out with a winner, but you can also assure that both people will end up kind of bloodied. Interesting interview our news director, Ian Pickus, did with former Governor David Patterson. You'll remember he came mm-hmm. in after Spitzer resigned in a prostitution scandal. He laid bare some of the political machinations that go on behind the scenes when it comes to being in that spot. And as I recall, Alan, and he pointed out, he had no time. He had a budget process in place. He had to basically step in and take over the reins. And as I recall, after he gave his famous speech where he ended with, I am David Patterson, he walked across the hall to speak with the Daily News and started immediately admitting peccadillos because he wanted to get that out there. But he had to. He had no choice. In other words, he knew the press was going to be hungry. They would find the things that he had done that might defy public approval. And so he did it. It didn't work, obviously. Cuomo came in and had him for lunch. So, um, you know, Patterson's a good man. Always liked him. Interviewed him a number of times myself. But I got to tell you, he is a guy whose name is in the ashes of the history of failed governorships in New York State. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Chartong. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. As the third anniversary of the Schoharie limousine crash nears, new federal safety measures are another step closer to becoming law after recent approval of a bipartisan infrastructure bill in the Senate. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard explains. The Senate passed the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act with bipartisan support. A victory for the administration of President Joe Biden, the package now heads to the House. The measure includes several items related to limousine safety, fought for by upstate New York lawmakers from both chambers, after the October 2018 crash that killed 20 people in Schoharie. Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke on the Senate floor on August 4th, after the chamber passed an amendment to include several limousine safety measures part of a House infrastructure plan. 
The accident was preventable. There was another accident on Long Island. Four young women in the prime of life killed in the same way. That was preventable. Now, Congress finally has the opportunity to address the gaps and loopholes that have allowed limousines to escape the basic safety standards that cover other vehicles. Limo safety provisions included would fund states to impound unsafe vehicles, mandate the U.S. Department of Transportation establish an annual limousine safety inspection program, support research and rulemaking on crash safety, require limo operators share vehicle inspection history with customers, and create a formal definition of a limousine in federal law, making it easier for future safety regulations. Capital Region Congressman Paul Tonko, a Democrat from Amsterdam, where several of the Schoharie limo crash victims were from, worked with the families to craft the proposed limo regulations. Speaking with reporters Wednesday, Tonko reacted to the Senate's inclusion of the limo safety measures. So this is a major step forward for limo safety uh, and uh, really responds with great respect uh, and sensitivity uh, to the lives lost and to those family members who continue to mourn. And, you know, my condolences to them on the passing of their loved ones. And we, uh, we have really sensed it to be an honor have worked with them in developing the legislation. Other New York lawmakers, including Democratic Representative Antonio Delgado and Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, along with Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, also supported the push for limo reforms. Although the Democrat-led House passed safety measures in 2020, they were met by a roadblock in the Republican-led Senate. Kevin Cushing, an advocate who lost his son in the Schoharie tragedy, spoke with WAMC in June about the limo safety measures moving forward in 2021. Not knowing what we were up against, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. And in this case, uh, speaking for me, it's it's been daunting, but it's also been um, it's been rewarding to know that we're hopefully making a difference in a future, a potential future issue that took other families' lives. Their, uh, loved ones. In his remarks, Schumer thanked the families of the Schoharie limousine crash victims for their tireless advocacy. It's a beautiful thing what these families are doing. The hole in their heart will never go away. The hole in the heart of the whole city of Amsterdam, which lost so many of their vital young men and women, will never go away. But instead of cursing the darkness, they're lighting the candle. And tonight the candle was lit, thanks to the bipartisan cooperation we have here. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A New York State senator from the Hudson Valley and more than two dozen of his Democratic colleagues have called on outgoing Governor Andrew Cuomo and President Biden to use another tool to address the opioid overdose crisis. More from the Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn. New York State Senator Pete Harcum and 28 of his Democratic State Senate colleagues sent a letter in late July to President Biden and Governor Cuomo asking them to declare a state of emergency to fight the overdose epidemic. Harcum, chair of the Senate Committee on Alcoholism and Substance Abuse, authored the letter. We wrote the letter because um, we really have a crisis of overdose deaths. 
Um, 93,000 Americans died of overdose last year. That's up 30%. And that's four times the number of Americans who died from gun violence. And I'm glad the governor declared an emergency over gun violence and that the president convened a gun violence summit. We need the same kind of urgency around the opioid crisis to marshal every public health dollar and every public health resource we can to save lives. That figure for 2020 comes from recently released data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 93,000 people dying from overdoses is an outrage. People should be screaming from the rooftops. And when my son died back in 2012, that's what I wrote in the article, that people should be screaming from the rooftops back then. And now it's so much more that it's, it's absolutely out of control. Susan Salomon lost her 29-year-old son Justin in May 2012 to a heroin overdose. She and her husband, who live in Putnam County, along with another couple who also lost their son to a battle against heroin, started the nonprofit Drug Crisis in Our Backyard. We all know what's happening because it's happening in our friends' family, our neighbor's family, my sister's family, whoever. You know, it really isn't happening in my sister's family. But that's what it's like. No matter who you say it to, they'll say, I know someone. And, but still we're, still, we're still sweeping it under the carpet. We don't talk about it openly. We're embarrassed about it. You know, so I think we've got a long way to go. I think we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. So I, I applaud um, the senator, Senator Harcum, for for just coming to the plate over and over again and pushing this agenda forward because, you know, somebody has to do it, and, and he is willing to do it. Westchester County-based Stephanie Marcasano is founder and president of the Harris Project, named for her son. So my focus on co-occurring disorders didn't happen by accident. It happened by tragedy. So my 19-year-old son, Harris, died by accidental overdose in 2013. Harris had had a long history of an anxiety disorder, later ADHD diagnosis, and self-medicated, first with marijuana and then later with opioids. And when he entered the rehabilitation on the substance use side system of care, they all said that they treated co-occurring disorders, but each was abstinence-based and really just, you know, taking away the substances and kind of spitting you out the other side, never really addressing the mental health piece, which is what led to each recurrence of use. Marcasano says it's important to meet people's needs the first time they enter the system of care. And so for those who don't know, co-occurring disorders is when you have both a mental health challenge, you know, anxiety, depression, ADHD, bipolar disorder, and you also have a substance use disorder. And I think that for the first time, they've actually, you know, put into a letter the recognition that these things often go hand in hand. A spokesperson says President Biden has made clear that addressing the overdose and addiction epidemic is an urgent priority for his administration, and that as part of the Biden-Harris administration's first-year drug policy priorities, the president urged the extension of the opioid public health emergency declaration, which Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra renewed in July. The White House also outlined a strategy that includes expanding access to evidence-based prevention, treatment, harm reduction, and recovery support services, as well as reducing the supply of illicit drugs. A spokesperson for Governor Cuomo did not respond to a request for comment, even before the governor announced his August 24th resignation date. State Senator Harcum of the 40th District says he will pursue the overdose state of emergency with incoming Governor Kathy Hochul. He says he has a good working relationship with the current lieutenant governor. If you speak to the families 
um, who've lost loved ones, you know, they want somebody to hear them and to understand the pain that they've gone through and want somebody to work as hard as they can to prevent other families from feeling the loss. And, you know, that's, that's what this letter is about. They want the governor and they want the president to be their champion. In addition to integrating evidence-based treatment of co-occurring disorders, the senators write that ramping up education and prevention efforts and ending barriers to treatment that disproportionately impact low-income, minority, and rural residents are also necessary. Salomon's nonprofit helps families struggling with addiction. For people in early recovery, they need housing, they need transportation, they need support services in terms of having a peer in New York, we call them peers. In other parts of the country, I'm, I'm not sure what they call, but they are recovery coaches that help a person go through the steps of recovery side by side with another person, one-on-one. And rather than, it's not treatment, it is really, uh, you know, like having someone that knows more than you do that has already gone through this help you go through it. I think that's really, really important. And housing is like of utmost importance because a lot of people that are addicted, they go into recovery, they come out, and then they go back and live where they were living. And, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. I had out my son come back several times to our house. It just didn't work. He, he continued to relapse. So if nothing changes, nothing changes. So they come back, and they're, they've gone through a program, okay, but their family has it. So they come back to a family that's still very sick. So also family education is, is right up there. With someone going, you know, off to rehab, their family needs to be learning, understanding what addiction is, how they can, how they contributed to it, and how, what they can do to help it now that their loved one's coming home. It's a, such a complex disease because it's a brain disease, and it affects the brain. Here's Mark Asano. We are going to be recovering from COVID-19 for a long time. We are going to be focused on racial inequity and social justice for a long time. If we can use this moment to make significant impact by truly looking at how we can integrate services, how we can empower young people to get help and support sooner, how we can, you know, train our professionals and credential our peers in both mental health and substance use to truly address co-occurring disorders, that's when real change will happen. Michelle Hinchy, Shelley Mayer, and James Skoufis are other state senators from the Hudson Valley who signed on to the letter. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask program number 2134. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.